We're starting a new series of messages today called That Which Shall Not Be. And it's intended to be an exploration of what life will be like when we are together with God forever and he has removed from uh, our context the consequences of our sin as well as the sin itself when he has finished or completed uh, his work with his church and we are all together with him in eternity and what will that be like what will it be like to to live with other people thank you ralph (laughs) um in such a way that there's no conflict there's no Uh, sickness, there's no sorrow, there's no death, there's no sin. Um, And this is an idea that I um, introduced a few months ago uh, as I was first sort of exploring this uh, series and and doing some pre-work on it. And uh, I want to kind of go back to that bigger thematic concept to begin this process. And I'm going to give you some some uh, historical background to what's going on here and attempt to kind of bring you into the big picture before we break down different components of what it will be like to live without guilt and shame and fear and different individual aspects of this truth. So, Today, I want to begin by uh, taking you into uh, a little bit of the book of Isaiah. And those of you who know me, uh, I, I have a hard time just clipping like one verse out of context and reading it to you. I like my verses in their historical context, and but in order to get to the point I'm making today, I'm going to... I'm going to give you some context, and then I'm, I do have a few little clips that I want to include, but I uh, have some larger bodies that I want to work through with you as well. So Isaiah was living at a time about, well, let's just use ballpark round numbers, about 600 years before Christ. And God was using him to speak to Israel about a change that would come, and he was speaking to Israel about their rebellion, about their refusal to uh, stay faithful to God. And Isaiah began to talk about two things uh, as he as he wrote God's word to God's people. One of those things was this suffering servant that God would send into the world, that God would send to redeem Israel, ultimately. And the other thing that he began to talk about was the redefinition of Israel, that Israel would become a people known by a name henceforth never uttered, Uh, a name that was not known at the time Isaiah was writing. And he uses this language, I will bless a people whose name you do not know, whose name you've never heard. That people, I will argue, is us. That 
God is saying to Israel, in your rebellion, I'm going to finish my work with you. And I'm going to usher in a new day where all peoples of all nations are welcome at at the foot of my throne. And I'm going to give that body a new name. And so Israel will be renamed and redefined as a group of people that is open to every race and tribe and language and culture of the world. And so Isaiah begins this articulation of this coming era in which uh, a new thing will be done. And he does what every prophet does. He grabs uh, the corner of the blanket of eternity future and pulls it down to earth and nails it into its historical place. And so he's looking not just at his own context, but he's looking at a future that God will bring about through this suffering servant uh, that will be an ultimate future, an eternal future, a completed work in which we will live with God forever. And so I want to take you first to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, and you'll hear this idea of of this new work being completed, and then we're going to work backwards through a little bit of Isaiah, kind of, sort of. So Isaiah 65, 17 For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And so we're exploring in this series those those things that shall not be. And Isaiah talks about this future coming of a new heaven and a new earth, a time when everything will be made new, and those things that tend to define this existence will no longer be remembered. Then in chapter 60, Isaiah says these words. I want to read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 18 through 20. And and let me just say, say this. I highly recommend the whole chapter. I just don't have room for it all on my little sheet. And I've learned if I, if I go to two of these pages, then I keep you much longer than, than Craig's derriere has tolerance for. So I'm just trying to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get yelled at when we're done. I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, hey, Isaiah chapter 60 verses one through six and then verses 18 through 20. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For beyond, behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your right. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. Thank you, sir.
feel so confined now. Can't wander around. Um, all right. So that's the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 60. And he's speaking to this suffering servant who we know is Christ. Um, and now I want to move towards the end of that chapter. Violence, starting in verse 18, shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And then just one snippet out of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, in fact. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. And so these concepts are included in the prophet Isaiah's expression of God's word and God's will to his people. And they come into a much more clear light when Christ comes. And then after Christ has come, the the man who is considered to have been his best friend while he was on this earth Uh, the Apostle John, is taken up into heaven. And he's given a glimpse of things that none of us ever get to see. And John called that that glimpse, in in Greek, it's called the apocalypsis. Uh, We translate that to the book of Revelation, that which God revealed to John. And so in the book of Revelation... John gives us this sort of final picture of this of that which was prophesied by Isaiah and I want you to I'm I'm hoping that you pick up the massive parallels between John's vision and what Isaiah has already said and just if we can just collectively sit in the miracle of what God revealed some 600 years prior to giving John this vision and how clear it was to the prophet Isaiah. From Revelation chapter 21, I'll read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God. This is so massive. It's really, I think, impossible for us to fully comprehend. And many of you know we have, a, we have an artist in residence in our church, and um, he uh, did this painting on the back wall, and we'll, we'll talk more about that later, uh, maybe after this series. But... Um, it's a depiction of that new Jerusalem from the inside where the river of life flows and the tree of life is planted and its roots permeate all of, of the new creation. It's an attempt to sort of bring us into uh, this reality in a visual way. And what I, what I hope to do today is to sort of bring you into that reality um, just in a in a, I guess, a studied way, perhaps. I don't know, it's not the right way to say that. But just for us to sort of try and, and enter that reality in our minds a little bit. And it begins with this call to step into the light. And there are these massive metaphors, both in Isaiah as well as in John's depiction of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, of light and dark. That we're coming out of darkness, or at least life that is shadowed, into a place where light permeates everything. Um, Graham, who did that painting, said that actually the most difficult part of doing that was trying to comply with the fact that there's light everywhere in the new Jerusalem. Artists have to use shadow to give depth and perspective and uh, to help you perceive what's in the painting. And he, he's, he said it was really tough to try to do a painting where there's light everywhere. He, he, he couldn't actually do it, but he, he, that's what he was struggling with as he was trying to, to paint that was the fact that, oh, that's really hard to do. In fact, I'm going to have to give up at some point and add some perspective and depth and shading. So that we're called into this light, and we're called to, in order to step into that light, we must recognize the Messiah. And Isaiah, the reason I I gave you those first six verses out of uh, chapter 60, I believe it was, was that in verse 6, did you pick that up? That these camels will come 
bearing gold and frankincense. Woe, woe, woe. Yeah, boom, the mind blows. And so 600 years before he's born, Isaiah already knows what the baby shower gifts will be. And he does that so that when the baby comes, we'll all go, oh, oh, it's him. It's him. And so these these indications of who this child will be or when this child will come, uh, another illusion in in verses 1 through 6 is that of God's people being covered in darkness and there are two darknesses that, that surround the death of Christ. There's the darkness of that afternoon that we call Good Friday when the skies darkened and light was almost non-existent over that place. And then there was the darkness of the tomb that is shattered by the bursting forth of the light of the resurrection. And so, again, when we see these darknesses shattered by light, we go, oh, it's him. That's what God predicted would happen. So we're to recognize the Messiah when he shows up, in not only in history, but in our own lives. And we are to enjoy God's presence, stepping into the light of, of the love of God through the Messiah brings or should bring an enjoyment. We should be defined by joy, by that which God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And this is, in a sense, a call to return to Eden. You hear this echo in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, as well as in Revelation 21, verses 3, and then again in 23 through 25, that we will be with God, that his light will be so present that it will redefine our existence. And so now we have the Holy Spirit within us, but it's a, it's a struggle, it's a battle between my will and God's will within me. Then the struggle will be over my will will have yielded to that of God and I will be in harmony with him for the first real time in my life. We are to enjoy his presence both now and for eternity. This is a return to Eden where Adam and Eve were in the direct presence of God and direct relationship with God. Nothing between them and their Creator. And so this call to step into the light is also a call to step into a new reality. A a place where everything has changed, or at least everything that matters. Isaiah tells us we are to bring to God everything we have. The wealth of the nations. The seas will carry to Christ the wealth of the nations, he says. Um, How do I put this? That's you. It's you. 
if you just contemplate for a moment the the bloodlines that are in this room, very few of the pieces of DNA floating around right now in here uh, ever came from Israel. And God is saying, I want the whole world to come into my family. I want every race, every culture, every tongue, every tribe, every nation to know my love. And I want to bring them together into my family. I want to redefine what Israel is. I want to redefine what reality is. And this beautiful image that everything in this world came from God and from all over this world, the wealth of his creation will return to him. That we bring back to God what he sent out into the world in the first place. And there are these parallel passages from Isaiah and Revelation that we are to drink in the water of life. And it will cost us nothing. Yes, it was paid for, but by the blood of the Lamb, not by our own attempts to atone for our own sin. We're to drink in eternal satisfaction. This idea that God is to be refreshing, to quench our thirst, to soothe our souls is absolutely central to what Isaiah is talking about and what John records in his vision from, from the New Jerusalem. So, we step into the light of the Messiah. We step into a new reality where we are called to bring God everything we have and to drink in His eternal grace. And we are called to step into a new reality where we suffer no more consequences of sin. This is the part of this series that I will try to explode over the next few weeks and explore uh, as we look at not just the things mentioned uh, specifically in these verses. Um, There are many, right? Uh, Death, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. Mourning, crying, pain. And there are other aspects of the consequences of our sin that are mentioned throughout this. But to take a glimpse of an existence where those things that beset us now are no more. Where those have all been dealt with by Christ and He in fact says, it is finished. I am the beginning and the end. I've taken care of it all. And you can come in and drink in my grace for free. And so, we look at this idea of a world or an existence where we no longer suffer from the consequences of our sins. 
and we're struck by the fact that we're only taken there into that new reality by the sacrifice of the Lamb. Christ is described as the Lamb twice and just in, in this, these few verses in Revelation 21. And it is such a powerful metaphor. In Isaiah's world, the idea of there being no temple would be unthinkable. That there would be no way for dealing with our sin and coming back into communion with a holy and righteous God. And so Jesus essentially lays down the final sacrifice with his own holy and sinless life and removes the need for the altar of sacrifice from the temple. And in fact, the Holy of Holies in the temple represented the resting place of God on earth. It was his throne room. And Isaiah says he won't need that anymore. There's there's no need for a veil in a universe where all sin has been atoned for and everyone is brought into the direct presence of God. And so it is a completely new reality. Right now, in this existence, we all continually need the mediator of Christ to go between us and God, to atone for our sin, to keep us in right relationship with God by His grace. In that new reality, it's all dealt with once and for all, and we're free to enjoy the direct presence of God always. Um, So, my hope is that this exploration teases you a bit and gets you thinking about what Christ has done for us and what it will be like to live with Him in a place where there is no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more fear, no more shame, no more guilt, no more conflict. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we find it hard to believe that such a place exists Because our present reality is so full of those things which shall not be, but are so present now. And we pray that you would lead us to see more clearly the reality and truth of our future with you. And to bring it more fully to bear in our present circumstances. That we would live now with less guilt and less fear and less shame and less sin and less sorrow and less suffering. That we might shine this light of Your eternal hope even now into this dark and hurting world. We thank You for the sacrifice of Your Son, for the ways in which You have redefined our present reality and for the ways in which you will 
redefine our eternal reality. Help us to live out of that truth now. In Jesus' name.